Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. No matter where you're listening to us from or how, sit down, get comfortable, ease the seat back, and enjoy today's episode. All right, so welcome Nate Luby to the Wild and Exposed podcast, Nate in the Wild, and we are happy to have you. Happy to be here, guys. Thanks for having me on. So Nate, Nate in the Wild is Instagram, right? Yeah, that's my my digital name. <laughs> so <laughs> Nate, how did you become Nate in the Wild? Give us the the backstory. Um, well, I guess I would say that I started as Nate in the Wild, and then um, we reached this point in in time where now everybody has two names. It seems like their birth name and then their online name. So. I, uh, I guess I've always been in the wild. I'm just now able to adopt it as a screen name and kind of conduct business under that umbrella, which is kind of nice. But, uh, you know, I was born in Montana in Missoula, and then I grew up in a small mountain town in Colorado. And so I've just kind of always been immersed in the mountains, wildlife, nature, everything. It's uh, from day one in the wild. Excellent. Where did you grow or where did you live in Colorado then? Uh, I live in a tiny mountain town called Conifer, which um, is pretty small, kind of a little blip off off the side of 285. I'm sure if the Chamber of Commerce listens to this, they're not going to be very thrilled with that description. But um, it's not like a ski town next to a resort or on your way to Vail or anything. But um, it was kind of a fun place to grow up because I could you know, grab the dog after school and go on a hike. And in the winter, I'd go ice skating on the little pond. And it was just very immersed in nature. It was great. Excellent. Sounds ideal. I mean, Colorado's becoming so populated, right? It's nice to have a small town to get out. Yeah, I, I go back now and there's uh, there's more than a single grocery store and we actually have like a hardware store and stuff. It feels kind of weird, to be honest. It's not, There's a couple stoplights even. It's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my hometown still just has one. Oh, nice. <laughs> so it's all good. I, I know that town. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> How did you get involved in photography then? So you you grew up outdoors like like the three of us. But yeah. what led you to pick up a camera for the first time? So I um I don't I guess remember my exact first time picking up the camera, but my dad was in media. He was uh, actually in radio. Um but, but he through the reporting and, and everything, doing all these news stories, he he brought a camera with him at all times. He was a very passionate photographer. And so I just grew up around uh, cameras and I didn't have a huge interest in them, but I absorbed a lot, I think subconsciously just listening to him talk about what he was doing and seeing all these photos on our trips. And then I think it was honestly once like camera phones became a thing, I got a, a you know, a phone in like, Oh, I don't know, 2007 or something. I had a really low quality camera on it, but I realized that I actually really enjoyed the act of taking photos when I was out on these adventures as well. And as the, cameras got better my photos got better and I just got a little bit addicted to it and um you know going on hikes after work every every day or a couple times a week I slowly really got addicted to it and uh, eventually invested in a, a real quote-unquote real camera um one of the original Olympus OMD EM5s and uh I was just kind of shocked like how good it looks you know, to have a, an actual camera with an actual lens on it. And then I was toast from there. <laughs> well, yeah. you've come a long way from the smartphone. If, you know, <laughs> it's, 
on your Instagram page, and and people should do this. Everybody's got a phone nearby, and there'll be in the show notes the link as and as well as some of your work, of course. But you really have quite a diversity. You've traveled a lot, and the combination of landscape and wildlife, and the I love the colors in your work, the, you. the northern lights. So. I mean, people should, while they're listening to the podcast, just to get familiar, go to your Instagram and look at some of the amazing images that you've collected around the globe. And I mean, we'll get into those destinations and why you're doing that, I, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thank you again for everyone listening. It's just Nate in the wild. Shouldn't hopefully be too hard to find. Right on. So maybe we should talk about that now, like some of these destinations and how do you go from picking up a camera to then go into Churchill, go into Alaska, or do you have something else, Mark? Yeah, sorry, yeah, I'm putting on my hand and dropping things. I just wanted to start ask a question on his Instagram handle. It says "Time Person of the Year 2006." I knew and that. Was we've never had the Time Person of the Year on the podcast of uh, from any year, right? So, can can you tell us about that? Why that's why that's a spin on on your promotion there. Did you uh, did you Google it to read the article about me? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I'm like, this is so cool, so crazy, and so I I put it in. I put time, person of the year, 2006, and I mean, I, I wanted. I'm still a little confused. <laughs> it came up. <laughs> it came up. You. Yeah. So the Time Magazine no, no, no. 2006 is everybody uh, in the world. So congratulations to you three as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love, love it. Why not? Uh, right now, I gotta if change my bio. Yeah, if totally. You're an, if you're an ambassador for this planet, then why not? Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Everyone's accomplished amazing things worthy of recognition, right? So uh, that was a really cool trick of them to play, and I feel I have fun capitalizing on it. You'd be well, maybe not surprised how often that comes up, but uh, it's fun. I've thought about kind of messing with people in the past and being like, oh, it's too painful. I can't talk about that. Um, but I don't want to, like, start too much of a, a media storm. <laughs> right, right. No, why not? Cool. Yeah. All right. But, I now so, understand, clearly. Cool. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, everyone's done something worthy of, of recognition, I think, especially in the landscape and wildlife photography genre everyone seems to be very environmentally conscious and and worthy of like pushing forward conservation plots and so you know i just try to remind myself to to live in that vein so to speak right how can you not how can you not feel it right of course when you're out there i i love the the description on your website in your bio about you know watching the sunset on the mountains and the stars come up and and experiencing that transformation of dusk to nighttime and what how to capture that how to photograph that you know those challenges and, and immersing yourself in that moment i mean clearly you feel that way yeah absolutely it's uh it's my happy place and i'm very fortunate that i get to earn a living in my happy place not not a lot of people get to say that absolutely right on so i'll backtrack i'll i'll take a step back and and michael can pick it up I guess wanting to know where, how it became a profession, I think is where you're going and the destinations that that takes you to now. Sure. Yeah. So, um, my job before photography was, uh, I was a professional brewer in Colorado, um, which was <laughs> Mark's, Mark's face just lit up there. <laughs> um, it was a pretty fun job, but it was, you know, very physical labor doesn't pay super well. Um, and so I kind of hiked on the weekends to you know, relieve the stress and have fun. And I, I ended up 
selling a couple photos, realized I could make a little money to supplement my income. Um, and I decided to kind of see if that was like a side hustle that made sense for me. So I, I reached out to some companies that I really liked and uh, most of them didn't respond, but Sierra Designs was nice enough to give me a shot. Um, they took me on for some some very cheap photography work, which was, for the record, not them exploiting me. It was just me not having any idea how much to charge at the time because I was new. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was you know it was really fun. It kind of opened my eyes to the possibilities, and so I continued pushing down that path and exploring different options and ways to to sort of finance on the side. To I guess the way I used to look at it was I wanted to. Um, not have to make the choice between a savings account and a vacation. I wanted to be able to do both. And so the photography was a fun way to be able to take a vacation without having to cut into my savings. And it ended up taking off enough that I was making more money on these quote unquote vacations than I was at my physical labor job. Eventually I just made the transition. And um, from there it's sort of just been like chasing down the, the stuff that is most interesting to me. Uh, and they, it really is true. You know, they say if you're determined enough, you can kind of make anything happen. So it's like going to photograph polar bears was always a dream of mine. And um, it's not an easy job to get because everybody wants that. And it took me a long time to make it happen. But, you know, dedicate yourself and be smart about how you present your marketing plans. And eventually things will happen. So my bucket list is still miles long, but I'm slowly chipping away at it. You're too young to be talking about bucket lists. Well, you know, if you spend enough time with polar bears, I might have to. Ah, okay. The next six months. (laughs) Valid point. Valid point. So that's cool. So the polar bears wasn't just you going to photograph them. You figured out a way to be there as a guide, it sounds like, and and be able to create revenue while you're there while filming? Um, Yeah. So I was on assignment my first time. Um, I worked in partnership with Travel Manitoba. So the province of Manitoba helped subsidize the trip. And then I also... um, doing a lens review article for Sony and B&H Photo. And so those three sponsors combined ended up covering the cost, uh, which, you know, it's an astronomically expensive trip to get up to Churchill in the first place. So I had to go on assignment. And then this last year I went back, actually, Churchill Wild invited me back to be a photo leader for one of their departures, which was really fun. Excellent deal. Yeah. Deal. This last year was pretty good for bears up there, wasn't it? It was. I had uh, one of my favorite wildlife encounters of all time while I was up there, which was really cool. We got hit with a pretty nasty storm, so there was a couple days without a whole lot of viewing, but it sounds like the overall season was really good for people. Yeah, I saw a lot of stuff on Instagram, so just tons of bears everywhere. Which is great. Really sure, early yeah. freeze-up again, though, which I guess is good for the animals. Early freeze-up? Yeah. Sorry, I missed that. that... Yeah, yeah, they said okay. early freeze-up this year, which means that they head out to the ocean a little bit sooner, which isn't great for the tourism, but it's better for the bears you know because the sooner they're out on the ice the sooner they're they're hunting and eating so sure yeah good to hear yeah charles glatzer said the same thing he said they his group went a little bit too late so they ended up photographing arctic fox (laughs) (laughs) pretty much (laughs) i actually had i had dinner with Chaz uh the week before i headed up there and we were chatting about he was a little a little bummed about that timing but he's uh he's as good as they get he's able to make it work no matter what happens Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a dance up there because you've got to go late enough where there's a lot of bears, but you don't want to go so late that the ice is forming. So you need to really play those dates. And how could you know? I mean, you just don't know, right? Of course. Yeah, it's it's nearly impossible. And it freezes up so quick there. You know, it'll be uh, in, you know, like zero degrees Celsius and then 
a week later it hits 40 below and it's frozen. It's crazy. It was an early year. Even in Ontario, we were frozen up beginning of November this year. But you've got to you kind of put the teaser out there. One of your all-time favorite wildlife experiences this year. Encounters. Oh, encounters. Yeah, just uh, in Churchill, it was just a, you know, a big adult male who um, wasn't scared, you know, as weird as it sounds with, uh, you know, like a 800 kilogram animal. It's weird to think of them being skittish, but a lot of them are. Um, so we were just, we were fortunate we had one of those big, just beautifully healthy males wander by, not scared of us. And he spent a good 45 minutes, uh, you know, only like 30, 40 meters away maybe a little closer and a little more interested than you would consider ideal. But from a photography perspective, it, it was just absolutely perfect. Yep. All right. So you got polar bears. What, what else <laughs> was that the kind of the top of your short list to get started? And, um, well, you know, just getting started is always tough because you're kind of looking for any animal you can find, um, you know, just an exciting bird. You see a cool bald Eagle, you find a Fox, even elk deer, bighorn sheep, what have you. Um, it's always kind of interesting to me watching people progress from the beginning stages into the more advanced stages because when you're first starting out, any animal you see, you take the shot and you're happy about it. You know, it'll be like an elk's butt as it walks away and you're just happy that you saw an elk. And then the more you progress, the more you're looking for like the eye contact and great lighting and a better background and everything perfectly sharp, et cetera. So I mean, just getting getting off the ground, I was happy with anything. But these last couple of years, yeah, polar bears have been um, the pinnacle. You know, getting that eye contact focused properly, good lighting. I would say that's probably like the wildlife shot I'm most proud of at this point, for sure. You know, you said you were an outdoors guy. Were you a wildlife guy then before you started? Uh, I was always into wildlife, for sure. I'd you know, get excited seeing mountain goats and bighorn sheep and moose in Colorado. Um, so even before I had a camera, I loved seeing the animals. Yeah. When you switched to a more serious camera, was it the landscape photography or wildlife photography or both that, that took off first for you? Your... Um, you know, it was landscape photography first, but I think that's just mostly because of the financial barrier of entry for wildlife photography. So um, I just couldn't invest that much money. And so landscape photography is a little bit more approachable in that regard because you don't need a 600 millimeter telephoto lens, which, you know, is more affordable on an Olympus style system than Canon, Nikon, Sony's full frames. But I, I started out with landscapes, I think, because they're a little bit more accessible, both in terms of getting there and then the equipment necessary to capture them. So you can pretty much always guarantee you'll find a good landscape <laughs> if you know where to drive. But you can never guarantee you're going to find a mountain lion. No, that's a fact. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I guess that's kind of a nice starting point, though, you know, for somebody looking to get into it. Because landscapes, you can always find a good one. And then you just have to wait for the good conditions. And that can kind of be predicted. But animals are hard. There's just no way around it. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You can kind of see that eye, a landscape photographer's eye in your in your wildlife work as well. You're looking for that light. You're looking for that perfect composition and i think it's it's good practice for anybody to go out and i i find that landscape photography for me is is much more difficult because i just don't i just don't see it i don't see the shot the way i can when i compose an animal because i know that animal's behavior i know what i'm looking for i know the light that i'm looking for yeah um but 
the landscape photography it is something that you have to work out to develop that eye and i think that it's advantageous to have that background especially when i look at your work and look at you know especially your polar bear work um i think that's that's very evident that you had that background and and carried that over into wildlife photography as well oh cool thank you yeah I'm a big fan of the uh, environmental landscape, uh, wildlife shots, which I guess is kind of a phrase I also picked up from Charles Glatzer, just um, yeah. not like the, you know, the close up sexy headshot portrait of the animal, but showing them in their environment, showing where they're at and what they're doing to interact with that landscape. It's to me um, really cool. And honestly, the elk photos behind all three of you. <laughs> Sorry. <right. laughs> you have an elk photo behind you, but it's perfect. Let's <laughs> right. that point where you can kind of, see where they are and what they're doing, which is really cool. That's the flavor of the day. We all had the memo. <laughs> <laughs> I should have hung one up. Sorry, I blew it. <laughs> no worries. But, you know, that's the, the environmental portrait is hugely popular for wildlife yeah. photography nowadays. The last five years, it's been increasing in popularity, and I, I agree. I mean, it's great to see where they live, and there's a talent to capturing that as well. And I mean, I love the challenge of trying to do both on a trip, right? To get those behavioral images, the intimate close-ups, but also to be aware of the opportunity for the environmental portrait. Yeah, they're, they're all equally important. You know, it's, it's cool to showcase the animals as they are. And so sometimes the close-up is cool and other times showing these crazy landscapes, especially somewhere like Grand Teton National Park or Glacier, Alaska. It's, um, to me, the, the joy of being somewhere like Katmai photographing coastal brown bears is these massive glaciated volcanoes behind the bear. It's almost as exciting to me as the bear itself. So I, there are so many places that you've traveled to for landscape, iconic destinations for landscape that you've captured so well. I mean, I don't know if you want to jump into that stuff. I mean, there are many places I haven't been. I've never been to Machu Picchu and hiked up in Peru, you know, and there's Iceland, there's fill in the blanks. Your Instagram's got, I mean, and do you do you when you go to these places now, are you going for your own portfolio or are you leading workshops? Because I saw that on your page as well. What's the main driver, or or is it both purposes? Um, it's kind of both purposes, and I suppose it depends on on where I'm going. So I'll never lead a workshop somewhere that I haven't been before, of course, because um, I know people will attend a workshop to learn general photography knowledge, but I'm never going to ask them to come somewhere where I've never even like scoped the locations. So I, my first couple times to Peru, uh, were scouting. They were like commercial work. Well, actually my first time for Peru was, uh, as a brewer, actually, I was helping set up a brewery in Cusco, believe it or not. So I lived in Cusco for three years or three months. I'm sorry. Uh, went to Machu Picchu with my dad, which was really fun. And then I went back on assignment for a, a tour guide down there and we, we spent a month trekking. I did, uh, seven different treks through the Andes there, building out their marketing portfolio. And then with that conglomerated experience, now I lead workshops there. So went back this year for the third time, going back next year. Um, if you've never been to Machu Picchu, I really can't recommend it enough. It's It seems a little overdone, of course. It's as touristy as you would imagine, but it it's a sacred place for a reason, and you feel it when you're there. It's pretty cool. So do you find, having gone before and you kind of established your routes and that kind of thing. Do you find that you see new shots 
as you go back or are you taking people to get those iconic shots that you've already established uh, when you take a group? Um, kind of both. So the people who come on these workshops, they want the iconic shot, of course. Um, you know, they would be pretty upset if we didn't go to Machu Picchu and didn't go to Rainbow Mountain. But having been to Machu Picchu four times, for example, I do take them around and show them different angles, fun areas. You know, there's a up at the guard tower in Machu Picchu, there's a cool door frame where you can see it framed out with 700 year old stones. And so it's fun to kind of do both. You know, you get the classic shot that's on every postcard you've seen, but then push your artistic boundaries. I guess that's what you pay for in these workshops and kind of find cool angles. And honestly, I'm always really impressed. Uh, even the participants on the workshops find these cool angles I never would have thought of. Um, I teach a Northern Lights workshop in, in Norway every year. And mm -hmm. this last February, one of the participants took the best photo of the entire workshop, like hands down, made my partner and I just look like fools. It was one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen. I was like, well, all right, my job here is done. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, but it, it's really fun watching people explore and get creative. And then just the excitement, you know, is palpable. Your Northern Light shot. So I have always wanted to go photograph the northern lights and I, of course you know living in the u.s i always think of just going to alaska but i have talked to a lot of people that have been to iceland how reliable are the northern lights when you when you go over there i mean it's a it's a gamble it's a roll of the dice really it is um the good news is you know most nights if it's clear they're gonna happen if it's dark out and you can see the sky they'll probably come out let's say like 50 percent uh, the tough part is just that, you know, the winter in the Arctic is kind of bad out. And so you're gambling with with clouds and stuff. So actually, Alaska is probably one of the best places. Fairbanks has really clear skies in the winter, and they're right under the, the oval. So that's an incredible place. Um, they do lack a little bit of foreground element, which um, I personally really enjoy having a mountain or something in the foreground, not just taking a photo of the sky. Um, and, one of my favorite Aurora shots is in Churchill, but it's like the flattest landscape that anyone's ever photographed with the Aurora over it. And so that's part of why I teach my workshop in Norway and then in Iceland also is because you can, there's really cool mountains and glaciers and waterfalls you can put in the foreground, but it's more of a gamble for sure with the clouds. For, for the benefit of our listeners, seasonality for Northern Lights. So you target winter from the sounds of it. Yeah, uh, you sort of don't have a choice. I mean, it can be fall, winter, or spring, but you know the the absolute most important ingredient is that it's dark out. And um, obviously, in the Arctic in the summer, it doesn't get dark, so you just don't have a choice, unfortunately. <laughs> um, you know, it's much more enjoyable there in the summer. And and do you rely on the modern apps that show the solar flares and try to predict for your trips? whether it's yourself or for a group, when there might be that kind of peak of Aurora Borealis. Do you watch that? And do you have a favorite app if you do? Um, I do watch it. I have like six different apps on my phone um, just because it's good to stay apprised of all that information, especially uh, you know, if we have a group of 10 people that paid pretty good money to be there. Um, I haven't found them to be super reliable. Um, some of the lowest percentage predictions have been some of the best nights of Aurora I've ever seen. And then some nights with really great looking numbers have not quite panned out, but it's, uh, I don't know. It's like checking the weather report, right? They can say sunny and you could still get snow, but it's worth checking anyways, just in case. Okay. Yeah. I'd never really played with it. So I didn't realize I know I have 
friends of mine that do and watch it and talk about it, not friends that specialize in Northern Lights, wildlife photographers who try to add it on to a trip kind oh, of thing, okay. but I've never really focused on it. So it's good to know. It's not that reliable, but it's worth checking and being aware of it. I was just thinking if it, if it shows a solar flare, then maybe there's a better chance of more than one color array going through the Northern Lights or something like that. Absolutely. And so the one that everyone focuses on is called the KP index, which is really just um, it's kind of a function of like how strong the the solar wind will be. And so these like vertical ribbons in our atmosphere kind of lean over. So the higher the number, the further south you'll see this aurora. Um, the problem is a lot of people just associate it with the higher the number, the better it will be. And like I said, I've seen a KP one that was just the most incredible show I've ever seen and I've had KP6 where nothing happened. Um, but there's other indicators like the the BZ value, which is basically um, the magnetosphere of our planet sort of stretches out and then snaps back. And when that happens, it just basically blows up and it's incredible. So if you if you dive into it and you know what you're looking for, you can more or less predict what you're looking for. Um, but really I think I like the idea, like you were saying, of just going there for, for landscapes or wildlife, and then the aurora is kind of a nice bonus because I have so many friends who have planned aurora-specific trips, uh, spent five days in Iceland and not seen anything, and that's, you know, if that's the only thing you're there for, that's a huge letdown. But always worth watching for, because when it happens and you're out there... Oh, my gosh. Right? Yeah. So you said you started with Olympus. Sure. On your bio, you are working with Sony currently. At yes. what point did you make the switch or did they make the switch for you or how did that transpire? I made the switch actually pretty early. So I had the Olympus camera for about a year. Um, it was like my first intro. I had just two prime lenses. I had a 35 and a 90, which for landscape is kind of a weird assortment, but I didn't know what I was doing. So those were the lenses I got, um, which was kind of fun, sort of forced me into a creative box. And I feel like I really explored composition because of that limitation and when I was getting sick of those and I was looking at investing in some new lenses, I realized that I was honestly shooting with sort of an intro level camera and I decided to switch. And so I bought the Sony a7 II. At the time, that was the most current Sony body. And um, it, it was pretty early in my career, I guess, that I made that switch. And then Sony reached out to me about a year, year and a half after I made that switch. And at the time, it sort of felt like getting drafted to the Yankees right out of high school. I didn't honestly feel like I was ready for the team, but it was a, a huge honor. And it's st honestly still when we all meet up, all the ambassadors hang out. It's kind of astonishing, like who I get to sit next to and pretend I'm their peer. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, Thank phenomenal. you. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I've seen it. I think it's deserved. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, they perform really well uh, now. I definitely, you know, the old style batteries used to die pretty quick in the cold, which was, that's no secret, of course. But um, the, you know, the newer bodies, the A7 III, R3, R4, et cetera, have the, the newer full-size batteries. And I've been really impressed with them. I shot uh, the full day in Churchill from sunrise to sunset on a single battery. I've never had any issues. Um, Do you shoot with them gripped? I don't, actually. I feel like I'm one of the few people who has never complained about the ergonomics of the Sony cameras. And I guess I have kind of small hands and maybe it's also cause I started with the Olympus, which is like basically a toy. Um, they feel fine to me, but I know a lot of people put the grips on there and then that helps a lot too. And you're shooting in some cold weather environments. I, I know one of the questions that a lot of people 
that I've talked to have. How about their weather sealing? Have you found that that's even an issue or? Um, yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm kind of the poster child for like worst case scenario when somebody <laughs> sells a product, you know, like you and me both. Yeah, yeah totally. When they're designing <laughs> even, even clothing, they're like, Oh, nobody's going to do this thing. And then I'm the guy who does that thing. Um, uh, but I've never broken a Sony camera ever. Um, I have broken the back screen on one, but that was user error. It wasn't like a weather sealing issue. Right. Um, that was putting it in my backpack next to the tripod without wrapping it right. Very stupid. Um, but yeah, I've never I've never had a weather sealing issue uh, with the cameras, cold or rain. I am a little bit cautious about like putting rain covers on them, of course, if it's dumping. But I feel like I would do that even shooting with what's like the best weather sealed camera, the Pentax nowadays maybe um just you know it's like you have even if it's insured it's a five thousand dollar camera why would you take that risk but i've hiked it to the top of you know six thousand almost seven thousand meter peaks i've shot with it in blowing snow and 30 degrees below zero never had an issue excellent i was just using sony last week in minnesota and it was eight degrees out and it seemed to work great i just didn't you know and i was out there all day but you know when you're up doing northern lights and it's minus 10 minus 20 Fahrenheit. Totally. I mean, that's difficult. I mean, those are really harsh conditions and I just don't, you know, I was in eight degrees and it was fine. Yeah. I've never had any issues with it. Super cold. I mean, I always bring extra batteries just in case, obviously, but I feel like I don't think that approach would change if I was shooting with a different system. I feel like, you know, Nikon and Canon users are going to bring extra batteries too. So I feel like it's, it's pretty much on par nowadays in that category yeah i just treat that sony a little different than the canon stuff you know it's like if i'm going to beat something up if i'm going to beat a camera up i'm always pulling out the canon just because i like i can handle it i still feel like sony's a little fragile i'm like a little scared to be whipping it out but each time i take it a little bit further and it seems to hold up so yeah that's the reputation um is that they're a little more fragile i don't know if it's necessarily deserved or if it's just that they're you know newer to the market and people haven't really had the chance to put them through their tests quite yet but um you know it's it is a brand new camera system in the grand scheme of digital cameras and so i think we're going to see we'll see some more stuff coming out in the next couple of years in terms of people breaking them or not breaking them <laughs> putting them right. in faces i still have a significant insurance policy on all my gear regardless <laughs> yeah you have to yeah especially doing what you're doing yeah it's just a matter of time before i drop one off a cliff or something and there's no camera that survives that <laughs> do you find yourself um now traveling to where you want to travel or traveling to destinations where you're assigned it's a mix of both and uh, you know i'm never going to say no to an assignment that's somewhere i've already been if it's a cool project um, but I, like I said, I still have my list of, of places I want to visit and I am slowly trying to chip away at that. So I think number one right now, I want to go to Antarctica so bad. I've been working on it for a year and it's so difficult. It's just very expensive to go as a tourist and it's kind of tough to get an assignment down there because the only people that go basically already have incredible cameras and are pretty proficient photographers like working for National Geographic. So it's, it's tough to rise to the top of that. Not even just for, for wildlife. Obviously, penguins would be cool uh, and all that. But Antarctica, just from a landscape's perspective, looks incredible. And I think the uh, there's the southern lights too, the Aurora Australis, which I think, man, that would be neat. Yeah, exactly. And the, yeah, the landscape is 
changing all the time with the, I mean, it's no different than the Arctic with the ice, but it's just, it's changing constantly. And so it wouldn't matter how many times you were there. I think you'd be able to find something unique. Yeah, for sure. And it's, I mean, it's an enormous continent and it's still barely explored in the grand scheme of, you know, a place like Alaska, mm-hmm. for example. Um, and I, I guess you get there soon. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm working on it. And on that same token, uh, Greenland also, I think, which, I mean, you could argue is just Antarctica of the north, right? It's <laughs> just another big old island with a ton of glacier on it, but looks yeah. pretty cool. Well, I mean, Iceland's been hit so frequently by photographers, right? And Greenland has not. And, and I haven't been to either, so I can't compare, but it has to have, it's kind of a lesser known destination that yes. might attract people like you, and then if successful images come out of it, then new workshops. People haven't been there before. Exactly. Greenland would be cool. It's more or less untapped, and I think it would be really fun to go there and kind of discover some stuff. I think that's one of the main differences between wildlife and and landscape is you know if you're going to a bear place, you still got an option of getting a completely different picture than anybody else, right? Yeah. I guess I've never really thought about that before until you you guys were just talking about it. It's... uh, you know, you could go to Katmai 75 times and get different pictures every time. Whereas if you're shooting a waterfall in Iceland, you know, you're going to get the same landscape. Yeah, the sky's going to be different. The light's going to be different. But essentially, you've got the same subject. So that's kind of an interesting way to look at it when you look at wildlife versus landscape. Totally. And, um, you know, there's always that potential, of course, going to Katmai. You're going to get that same shot of like the grizzly with its mouth open and the salmon jumping into it. Um, but you're totally right. There's a thousand different options of, of what can happen there, which is kind of fun. But I I have that same bias. I mean, I'm so passionate about wildlife. I love this planet obviously, but, and I admire successful landscape photographers because my eyes never lean that way. It's always been, and this is not to, be, to belittle landscape photography at all, but to put an animal in the image makes the image for me. So the wildlife, the environmental portrait, I'd go for that. Sure. But I, I definitely appreciate the patience to wait for light, to wait for different kinds of light for landscape photography and working compositions with different types of gear to make a new image, too, of a waterfall in Iceland. I mean, I, I that's a challenge for landscape photographers. I would rather... I mean, I love being there. You know, it was we just did a two-week tour of the South Island of New Zealand, and the oh. landscape was very dramatically different in, in different regions, but just breathtaking in the marine life. I love the landscape, but I didn't have the patience to, to plan it out, to map it out, think, you know, this is in this kind of light on a clear morning at pre-dawn, the light's going to hit this mountaintop and make this happen and have the time, the days to do that. You know, instead, I want to go underwater with the dolphins and figure out how I'm going to get some different footage with an action camera and and have that experience. So, I mean, I appreciate the, and I'm just sharing this perspective with the audience, you know, for landscape photographers, that that perspective and patience to create that image, too. I'm driven by the wildlife, the behavior, and I know a lot of our listeners are, but there's both sides to that. Yeah. Best put together, but anyway. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I think the combination is really fun because there's times when, you know, like in Iceland, I guess, for example, going back to there, focusing just on the puffins, the beautiful animals, and it's great. But, you know, if you're on this crazy volcanic cliff of black rock covered in emerald green grass with a waterfall, I kind of want to photograph that as well. So it is fun to – I really enjoy doing both because I'm not, I'm not shutting down either option. It's great for tourism. 
for that kind of assignment, right? Definitely. And, and tourist boards are uh, some of my favorite clients for exactly that reason, because they just want the best stuff. <laughs> um, they're not really picky about what it is as long as it makes their area look good. And that's that's kind of fun. You get to just hunt down the most beautiful area in any location and share that. Yeah, it's fun to dive into that as a fresh perspective in, in that new location, right? To tell the story. Yep, absolutely. I feel that. I feel that. Cool. So, personal question. How old were you when you started professionally, when you made the switch from brewing to photography? Sure. Uh, 28, and I'm 32 now. Something that came up with Doug Gardner, and this is a question that we get from listeners all the time, and, and it's been asked in several different ways. But how did you know you were ready to be a professional? You know... I would say that I thought I was ready to be a professional, but maybe I didn't know. <laughs> I think it was more for me that I was ready to not be at my old job anymore, more than I was ready to be a professional photographer. So this random guy seemingly reached out to me um, through Instagram. He messaged me and he was launching a digital travel guide. His name is Craig Foldis and he's since become a really, really good personal friend of mine. Uh, and he was launching a digital travel guide and he told me he was obsessed with my work and he wanted to launch this guide. He needed a photographer. It was my job if I wanted it. You know, basically we met up for a beer and that was the interview. He said, it's mine if I want it. But it was a three month assignment um, going on the road. And so it it basically meant that I, I couldn't take vacation time anymore. I used to do these like spot projects I would take four or five days of, you know, quote unquote, sick leave from my job and go do an assignment and come back. This was enough that I had to quit. And so I just had a long look in the mirror and it was like, am I happy with, you know, $20 an hour of physical labor or do I want to try and actually like take the jump and make this work? And so I put in my notice at work and we went for it. And, um, you know, I think I was maybe ready from a photography perspective, but not ready from a business management perspective, which, that, I guess, is probably the truth for a lot of professional photographers is how much of the job is sending emails and client management and outreach and then, you know, just file organization and delivery and like writing contracts. Um, you know, you can be incredible at composing and exposing and editing, but if you don't know how to write a legally binding contract with commercial use license, man, you're, you're up a creek, you know, so... Uh, I kind of dove in the deep end there and I was fortunate I had three months of income set aside so I could kind of learn as I went. And it was a very fortunate opportunity for me to like kind of get to practice while getting paid. And I uh, am eternally grateful to Craig for giving me that opportunity. And do you two still work together? Um, we don't work together as much anymore, but we're still very much in contact. Sure. Yep. Yep. The, uh, the travel guide no longer uh, exists, more or less. It, uh, the, that business concept didn't quite pan out the way we wanted, but we created a lot of content and established some cool uh, connections in the industry, which was fun. Good. And out of that assignment, did you find anywhere that you decided to go back to, maybe do some workshops or how did that work out for you? Definitely. So I lived in Boulder, Colorado at the time and we, that three month assignment, we started in Seattle and did every single major city from Seattle to San Diego, building out travel guides along the coast. And I actually ended up moving to Seattle, which is where I currently live. So I definitely found a city I wanted to come back to. <laughs> so it worked out well then. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, uh, yeah, it was cool to visit all these different cities and see all these cool places. And it really opened up the United States for me. And uh, I haven't done any workshops here to answer your question, but I, that might be in the future for sure. 
I noticed you had Washington Eagles on your on your workshop on your pages. Is that something that you've done before? Or is that going to be a new one? That's going to be a new one. So we have this really incredible eagle migration every uh, December up here. Uh, the salmon spawn, you know, comes upstream from the ocean, and the eagles come down from Alaska when the weather gets too gnarly up there. And they come down, settle in Washington, and we have a couple rivers that get hundreds of bald eagles fishing for the salmon spawn. Um, and I've gone up to photograph it a couple times, and it's been really fun. So I, I decided it'd be fun to lead a little workshop closer to home. It'll be nice to do a workshop where I don't have to get on a plane with my, you know, 400-millimeter lens and a giant tripod and everything. So, mm -hmm. yep. so that'll be new in, in 2020. Yeah, I saw that. It looks pretty interesting. It looks... Is that shot from that area that's on your workshop page? Um, I don't have my workshop page pulled up, but it should be, yes. It looks really sweet. Lots of beach behind it. Yeah, it's uh, these rivers open up right into, it's the, the Puget Sound, but yeah, they, they open up into these really big flat open delta areas with uh, some beach and some grassland and a lot of like cool diversity of stuff to shoot. And if you're facing... The other direction there's mountains there as well so what have you got mapped out for 2020 for your destinations for your travel and portfolio expansion workshops sure so the um the first one coming up i'm going actually to sun valley idaho building out uh some content for them for the tourism board there uh, and then just doing kind of similar uh similar travels as we did last year uh workshop in peru the machu picchu one again northern lights uh, in in Norway, Fox's workshop in San Juan Island here in Washington also in May, which will be my first time doing that workshop as well. But it's a really like beautiful area. And of course, you know, Fox's with their newborn kits. It doesn't get any better than that photographically. Um, There's more than one one color phase there, aren't is correct. That right? Yep. Okay. Yep. Red and and the black, which is is really fun. And um, so last year there was a both a red and a black phase mother and i couldn't actually tell whose kits were whose because they were kind of sharing the mothering duties which was really fun so a lot of playful action and whatnot um and then i'm i'm doing another workshop in yellowstone i did one this year and it was a huge success so we're doubling down on it uh we saw a great gray owl um six out of the seven species of ungulate there bears we saw wolves coyotes of course bison uh i mean i'm i know i'm preaching to the choir here that yellowstone is <laughs> It's like Mecca for that kind of stuff. It's it's Mecca for being around too many people, too. That's the only problem with it. <laughs> Definitely. We go in, uh, you know, in the fall when it's starting to get cold, and so the crowds are clearing out a little bit, which is good because, man, you're right, June, sure. July is it's kind of not that fun. <laughs> not at all. No. Yeah. So which species did you miss? We missed mountain goat. So we saw... What is that? Mule deer, whitetail, elk, uh, pronghorn, bighorn sheep. What am I? Uh, what am I forgetting here? Moose. Yep. Mm -hmm. So we just missed the mountain goat. Lots to look forward to. Oh yeah, <laughs> always. So looking through your feed, Nate, you have a lot of the most iconic locations you can imagine for a photographer. Okay. Where's your favorite? And where would you like to go? Where is your favorite that was not an iconic? And where would you like to go in the future? What's on the radar? And I know that's kind of already been asked, but as far sure. as location, where would you like to find yourself? 
My favorite that's not iconic would have to be Gates of the Arctic National Park, which was this year. Um, it's the least visited national park in the United States. Um, extremely remote. There's no roads into it or inside of it and no established hiking trails. So I guess it's about as far from iconic as it could be, but it's just staggeringly beautiful. Um, the entire thing is in the Arctic Circle, so there's no trees there. It's just Arctic tundra, massive caribou migrations, uh, inland Alaskan grizzlies, and just towering granite peaks. Um, it was my first time there, and I, I am already counting the days until I can go back. And then I guess, I mean, yeah, we kind of already touched on it, but I think Greenland and Antarctica are the two that I'm most excited about uh, trying to visit here in the future. And I'm, I'm working on it. Hopefully we can make something happen here. Well, on your diverse Instagram feed, I mean, I've been, I've been on your page many times, but today before the podcast, I of course hit it up to look at some of the eye candy. And that was one of the images that popped up was gates of the Arctic with that huge monolithic rock. I'm like, where is that? And I looked and you had the locations like that's impressive. Yeah. It's, it's such an interesting place to be. It's so remote. Um, that Valley we were in, isn't named and none of those peaks around it are named which is it's a very strange feeling being somewhere that's like so unimportant in the grand scheme of things they didn't even bother giving names to the mountains so what did you name it <laughs> I, I hiked to the top of a small hill and i named it nate mountain and nobody can tell me it's not nate mountain ah, right on. nice if you want to hike something. to it you know if somebody else wants to climb it they can argue but until then it's nate mountain <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean this in the nicest way, but you know, the person of the year, you have that right. Yeah. You know, right? You can... <laughs> that's that's how I feel. No, I... If it's unnamed and I stood on top of it and declared it, I I'm pretty sure that's what that's what humans do, right? How else does it happen? <laughs> yeah. Historically. Exactly. It's the human <laughs> yeah. condition. Yeah. I would be remiss if I didn't mention there's probably a native name for that mountain, and I will yield to that. If the native tribe in that area has named it, that's the name. But until then, it's Nate Mountain. Well said. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of that changing Mount McKinley back to Denali. There's a kind of a movement here in Seattle to change the name of Rainier, uh, Mount Rainier, back to Tahoma, which was the the original name. Uh, so I'm very much in favor of that for whatever it's worth. Ditto. I would agree. Great. Yeah. I feel like we'd have a lot less of a, an aggressive climate debate if we had maybe maintained a little bit more of that indigenous culture around environmental preservation and everything. So that's a whole other podcast in itself, of course. But That's, that's a whole other podcast for every ecosystem. I think that's, that's <laughs> yeah. 50, that's 52, 50. Yeah. Podcast right there. Yeah. <laughs> yep. But Some of the guests that we've got coming up are, you know, they're photographers, but they've also identified some areas of, of concern, and I I can't wait to get their stories out, to be honest with you. Some of the people that I've reached out to or that we've talked to are a lot like yourself, um, young but have, have traveled a lot, are well-traveled. They're not necessarily uh, activists. But they're they're educated in their approach to educating others. I think is the best the best way to say it. And they've been there, they've lived it, they've seen it, and identified some things that we need to do in order to maintain it. Because I think the biggest problem, or the biggest problem with the human condition, is not standing on top of a mountain and naming it. I think the biggest problem is is we think we need to 
not have anything wild anymore. Yeah. It's it's about modifying the environment rather than appreciating the environment. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, yeah. Yeah. We'll stick with that because what I was just going to say is not as kind. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, when I'm not, you know, on the record, I'm a much more outspoken environmentalist. Uh, maybe not as kind either. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't even I wouldn't even say that I'm an environmentalist, so to speak. But I think that our, our problem is is we don't see the value in wild. And there are places on this planet that need to be maintained exactly the way they are right now. And there's no reason to change that. Uh, Garrett Venn was on not too long ago if you go back and listen to his podcast garrett's gone all over the world you know documenting different bird species but he's also documenting different issues and one of the places that he identified was a a park in alaska almost like gates of the arctic in that it's it's visited very rarely it's out on the aleutian island chain but they're talking about developing a road through this giant area of wilderness just for the sake of developing new fisheries. I mean, you're already seeing the fisheries suffer in Alaska, and we're going to go ahead and, and make a place where we can get to them before the next guy. So that, you know, there are issues like that that I think that we can speak about and just maintain some wild areas in, in our world. And I'm sorry, took a big rabbit trail there, but just trying to be delicate <laughs> in emphasizing what you were, what you were saying. No, I, you're you're absolutely right, and I think as uh, you know, nature photographers, whether it's landscapes or wildlife, um, you have a responsibility or even an obligation to help encourage and advocate for these wild places. Um, not just because they're you know beautiful, and we would all be very sad not to see them, but they do have an intrinsic value, um, you know, both emotionally, spiritually, but also financially. There's there's a fiscal value to these wild places as well, whether it's recreation or just simply, um, you know, the natural resources, you know, we're all on the same page that forests produce the air we breathe and, uh, clean oceans produce, you know, proper, um, weather patterns. They produce the fish that we eat, et cetera. And so I think it's, it's surprising to me, I suppose that it's a politicized issue and, uh, you know, we don't have to dive too far into that, but I always liken it to, you know, relieving yourself in your bathtub um we're all in this bathtub together so let's not pee in it first i'm first <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, but you know that really is how it is it's like we're all i love we're that all water <laughs> so like you can't get out of the tub right we're this is it we're this is our bathtub so yeah, I'm having a really hard time just not diving full force into this but <laughs> i feel it i feel it and yep. I, I know yeah. so many of our listeners do too. And it's just day to day what we can do ourselves. There's a long list of things we can do, but individually, even. But <laughs> feel it. I love that analogy. That's a good one. That's the first that I've is. heard that too. It's not yeah. going to be the last time. Could we use that as our closer <laughs> for for every episode from now on? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. <laughs> It's really the best analogy I've found though, to remove the political aspect, you know, because it's not right versus left at this point. It's, right. you know, it's we're here. Don't you, poop in the tub. Yeah. You don't throw your trash in your living room, right? So let's live here. Yeah. <laughs> don't I poop. like it. Michael, did you have something? 
No, I didn't. I was just uh, going over that analogy. <laughs> he was visualizing. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody said second yet. I'm, I'm just like Mark. Like... You could go down this. This is a whole podcast, right? You know, you just can go it down is for so sure. many roads. And I really oh. think, you know, I think we're kind of part of the problem, too, because we go out and take pictures of all these beautiful places, and then people want to go there. And then the more people that go there, the more it gets screwed up. And, you know, but There's... you can't not, not do that because why i mean there's there's a value to putting it out there and there's a value to just keeping it secret i don't know mm -hmm. there, there's yeah and that's a concern but really there, you're you're right but so much of society doesn't even see it so much of society lives in such large urban centers and, and are so consumed with the not nine to five the nine to nine job and paying their bills to pay for, to support their family or to make money so they can have their flashy parts of their life, wildlife isn't of interest, right? Nature isn't of interest. The environment isn't. It's just not a hugely popular pastime for the majority of people. So I think, like you were saying, Nate, I mean, we can help inspire people, motivate people to develop an interest, a curiosity, you know, and have that experience. If people go on a workshop with any of the talented guests that we've had on the podcast, they're going to have, you know, very likely a life-changing experience. And, and if they're not already passionate about the environment and natural ecosystems, they will be when they're done. I think when we can encourage people to spark an interest, children, of course, you know, first mm -hmm. and foremost, but to spark an interest in, in natural history and in this magnificent planet, I mean... There's just so much out there, this diversity, and, and to compromise it with what humanity is doing with our unfortunate overpopulation, we as a, as a collective, you know, but individually, I think it's our responsibility. And I know it's a soapbox, but really, it's getting to that point where we, any, any, every person that we can create an interest in, whether it's camping, you know, for those in the greater Toronto area that find out about Algonquin Park and go camping for the first time and they hear the loon uh, in the night, they're moved by it and they feel that connection and they want to go back. You know, maybe not all of them, but let's say 70% of them want to go back. They had such a great time. That, getting through that in, that initial connection, I think, is where we are, can be instrumental with our images and our passion and our storytelling. And showcasing those wild places and reminding people. Um, I mean, Mount Rainier is a great example. It's this beautiful, iconic volcano, but there are roads right up to the base of it and all the way around it and those are good it's in a national park it's well maintained it's ecologically minded development um, but I, I do try to remind people that that could have been not ecologically minded development and there's a lot of places that are equally beautiful that are developed for exploitation rather than conservation and there's only so much of that you can do before you run out of it and I think you're absolutely right that using our not just our images but our, our platforms um you know specifically having like a larger social media following showing these beautiful places and then you know helping to to explain to people that these are not eternal uh landscapes if you don't put the effort in to keep them that way you know some people not some people a lot of people live in huge cities that's kind of what a city is right is a lot of people live there and they maybe don't have access or exposure to these wild places with the, the amount of ease that, you know, us four do. And I, I have a lot of friends who live like downtown Manhattan in New York City. And 
they love seeing my photos because it makes them, you know, experience the nature side of the human experience. And uh, I love trying to bring that to people because if all you see is concrete and cars, you sort of forget that there's anything else out there. And it's it's really important to use your art to kind of showcase that to people who don't get to see it because they have an equal say when it comes time to visit the ballot box. Well, so high five, brother. All right. It's been fun. It's been fun. And, you know, I, I know everybody listening and, and my fellow hosts here on the podcast enjoyed hearing about your courage of switching careers and following your passion. And I'm happy that it's been successful and we wish you continued success and hope that we can keep in touch with you as time goes by. Definitely will on social media, but hopefully in the field or perhaps on another future podcast. Yeah, thank you very much. I'd, I'd love to come back and hopefully I'll get to go look at some wildlife with you three at some point in real life. Absolutely. That'll be fun. Yeah. Maybe we'll see you in Churchill someday or in Alaska or, or somewhere even less iconic. Who knows? Keep us posted, buddy. All right. We'll do. We'll do. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. So I want to thank Nate Luby for being on today's podcast. You can see more of his work on our show notes on the website at wildandexposed.com for today's podcast. You can see more of our team's work on Instagram, Facebook, and on our YouTube channel. And no matter which podcast platform you're listening to us on, make sure to hit that subscribe and follow button. And also, give us a positive review. Take a few moments, if you will, and give us a five-star rating, a thumbs up, write us a comment. Those actions all help us to gain traction in this competitive world of podcasting. We thank you for your support. I want to thank Missy McKenzie, or we as a collective want to thank Missy McKenzie, our hardworking and talented producer for all that she does to bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. Until next time, you've been listening to Wild and Exposed Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs>